Good morning, everybody. How are you all doing? Um, our text this morning is taken from the book of James, chapter 1, verses uh, 12 to 15. So I'm going to give you all a chance to get there. How many of you know how to find James in the Bible easily? Um, it was the easiest way. It's to use the index. <laughs> and, and when I go to the index, let's just do it like this. If we were doing it, it would tell me it was on page 1630, which weirdly I was already on. Uh, um, but if you weren't already on there and you found it or even your phone, you just look through the phone. And if you don't know how to do it, ask the person next to you. Say, how do you find the book of James? Because I want us all to, 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 to spend a little time here. Um, and and the, the first part of the verses we're reading today, so we're going to read James 1 verses 12 to 15. The first part of that is verse 12, which is, it says this. Blessed is the one who endures temptation, for when he or she has been approved, he or she will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So you're going to see it on the screens as well, but you can also follow along in the Bibles that you have on your phones or the physical um, copies that you have. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want to ask a question about just the first part of this. Is the blessedness that comes from enduring temptation something that we experience because we endure temptation in this moment or in this moment or in this moment? So I experience temptation. If I endure it, is there a blessedness that I experience right away? Or is it something that is more to do with a lifelong endurance? What do you think? Do you think it's one of those or both of those? Both of those? Who thinks it's one of them? Who thinks it's just about enduring the long run, enduring in the long haul, enduring until the, the final day? You don't have to raise your hands. Um, but I, I was reflecting on this just as we were thinking because, because I, think, I think endurance in the moment, of course, leads to long-term endurance. So what I don't want us to do is to get focused on the long-term endurance and say this is all about the, the final day when Jesus returns and there's endurance that I'm going to be blessed for on that day and not recognize that that day and the endurance that gets me there happens now and then now and then now. And the scripture refers to that moment-by-moment -moment experience, but there's also a reference you see in there to something called a a crown of life. And I don't know, there might be theologians here who can tell us what that is. I have no idea what that is. I don't know whether that's an actual crown made of, I don't know what, the Bible doesn't tell us what it might be made of, but it says there is something called a, a crown of life, physically, metaphorically, which is also happens, happens to be mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, as some sort of imperishable prize given at the end of a race the first corinthians 9 tells us is a race that we should run in order to receive that prize and so we we discipline ourselves like anybody running in a race recognizing that there's a finish line there's an end point and in order to get the prize the crown of life we act differently in moment every moment up to the point that we reach the finish line the bible mentions other crowns too given by the lord jesus on the final day including the crown of righteousness mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. And there's a crown of glory mentioned in 1 Peter 5, 4. Whether these are actual crowns that Jesus puts on us, 
or it's metaphorical. Either way, isn't it a good thing to get one? And how many of you go through the day thinking that in this moment that I'm being tempted, if I endure temptation and keep enduring temptation, at the end of this journey, when Jesus comes again, there's a crown that I'm going to get that's a reward of blessedness because I've walked through these moments and I've not given in to them and and fallen in them. Now, the second part of the text, which is where we really got to focus, verses 13 to 15 says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by who? God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he or she is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so that's where we're going to focus today. Considering this articulation of the process of temptation So hopefully, as we understand the process of temptation, faith to endure temptation may arise. An important thing to recognize is this is how it works. If you think that temptation works by some other means, it doesn't. James has broken it down for us, and that's why we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at this. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So the first point to recognize then is this, the tempter isn't God. If you experience temptation, it's not God that's tempting you. Who is the tempter? Okay. Now, if you look at Isaiah 14, 12 to 17, don't do that now, maybe note it, look at it later, Revelation 12, verses 1 to 17. It seems there to speak of this angelic being in the heavenly places who is prideful, and rebellious, and wants to be like God. And the Revelation passage tells us that there seems to have been a war in heaven at some point, a war in heaven between this angelic being and his angels, which were a whole third of the angels in heaven, and the archangel Michael and his angels, presumably the other two-thirds of heaven. And somehow in this process, this angelic being, because of wanting to be like God, is thrown out of heaven. And the scripture says in Revelation 12 that he's thrown to earth and it says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, which is who? That's us. So that's not a great place to be thinking about, but it says he, because he's thrown out of heaven for his rebellion and his, his trying to be like God and his lawlessness and, 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 and the war that he starts and the war that he loses and he gets thrown down to earth. Woe to all of us because the scripture says that he's come down and he's mighty angry and he's furious because he knows His time is short, and so he sets about making war with, persecuting the people of God, those who keep the commandments of God, and those who follow Jesus, those who love Jesus, which is us. And he has a number of different names in Scripture. Some of you called out Satan, but he's in other places called Lucifer. In other places, he's called the devil. In other places, he's called the serpent. In other places, he's called the accuser. In some places, he's called the deceiver. The one who tempts is who? And the process of temptation is interesting because in James 14, 1, 14 to 15, and let's just look at this. And I don't know whether this is seven stages or three stages. And open your Bibles, please. And so just look, look at this. It says, each one is tempted by who we've just spoken about. When he is, what's the first thing it says? You're all looking at the Bible. I'm not going to do the work for you. 
This is like the exercise class where you come and the, and the instructor's going to say, well, I know how to work and I know how to lift stuff. If you don't do something, you're just going to be the same as you were when you came in. All right. So who's got their Bibles open? All right. So, so you can call it out. It says each one is tempted when he is, what's the next two words? Drawn away. Drawn away, what does that mean? It means that we were in a place and we're drawn away from that place. Now, whether that, whatever you were doing, whatever you were set in, whatever you were walking in, you were drawn away from that place. Sometimes in the scripture, it says that we're meant to walk out the call of God and we're not meant to turn aside to the left or the right or to look backwards. It means that you're on a, on a path, on a, in a purposeful way of walking and you were drawn away from that. What's the next thing it says? Drawn away by what? His or her so if those desires weren't there, maybe you wouldn't be drawn away by them. But because those desires are there, it says we're drawn away by our own desires and, next word is, enticed. Something sparksing us when the temptation comes. The temptation comes, there's desires in us, they entice us. And it says, so if you think about it, we'll be enticed from somewhere to somewhere from something to something. And the scripture continues and says, when desire is conceived, think about that. How long does conception of desire take? Moments? Days? Don't know. But there's a process of the temptation that draws us away by our own desires and entices us. When desire over time conceives, which tells me that there's a mulling, there's a contemplation, there's a engaging with whatever this temptation is, it gives birth to what? Sin. And is that the end, or is there more in this process? It says sin when it is full grown. So sin begins maybe little. You ever seen those movies when someone does something? Shakespeare used to do this the whole time, a lot. Someone would do one little thing, and then the whole of the rest of the play or the movie is about the consequences of that sin. Whatever the initial sin is, when sin is fully grown, and it matures, and it infects, and it touches, and it, it, it corrupts everything, it brings forth what? Death. So let's just look at that again, a process of presentation. Each one is tempted when he is drawn aside by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so what's interesting in this process, it's telling us that sinning is not a good thing. And we are Christians, we shouldn't need to be told that, but sometimes I think we do need to hear it again. It is not okay to continue to sin. It is not okay to continue in sin that is habitual. Romans 6.1 says, should we keep sinning so that grace may abound? And Paul says immediately, by no means. So because we're aware of the magnificence and the magnitude and the greatness of grace, I just sin again because grace is going to cover it. And I'm going to sin again because grace is going to cover that. I'm going to keep sinning and there's going to be more grace. Paul says that is a misunderstanding of grace. So if that's how we're walking, it's not Right, the scripture warns us, and there's two scriptures I'm going to give you. I want you to note them down because I'm not going to get into them in detail. Hebrews 10, 26. Hebrews 10, 26 and 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 12 warn us about the problems of continuing in sin, habitual sin. 
And interestingly, the second of those passages, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 12, uses the examples of the Israelites. It says, if you think that you can just keep sinning and get away with it, well, just pay some attention to the people that God called out of Israel and walked with him through the wilderness and followed the cloud and followed the pillar of fire and had his provision. He struck them down in the wilderness because they continued to complain and they continued to practice idolatry and sexual immorality and all those things. So you, Christian because it's in the New Testament, if you think you can do this and get away with it, you are wrong. Because these things are in the Scripture as an example for us. So I just wanted to lay that down for a moment before we go on to say then, ultimately then, what's the question? What is sin? Is there a definition in the Bible anywhere? It's interesting because you say, well, it's not right to keep sinning, but if you've got a definition for me, what is it I shouldn't do? First John 3, 4 says this, sin is lawlessness there are laws there are things that God has said not to do when sin is passing the lines that God draws but I want you to open your Bibles please to Romans 14 verses 23 Romans 14 23 because this one's really really important this is one of the clearest definitions of sin you're going to find in the whole of the New Testament Romans 14 verse 23 says what? Whatever is not of faith is sin. Isn't that stark? Whatever is not of faith is sin. You could flip that. Sin is whatever is not of faith. Faith is aligning with God's word. Faith is doing what we hear God tell us to do. Faith is walking the way God tells us to walk. Faith is saying yes to God, no to self. And so obviously, sin is saying yes to self, no to God. Whatever the word of God is to you, the things that he's laid down in scripture and said, these are the things, this is my will, this is the, this, these are the things that I want you to walk in, these are the things I want you to do, I want you to practice justice and mercy and righteousness, I want you to love to do the opposite of those things is clearly going to be sin. But there are more specific things that God has laid down in Scripture that says don't do this and don't do that and don't do that, don't do this. If we do the opposite thing and we say yes to ourselves, that is sin. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the Scripture is just telling us simply, whatever is not of faith is sin. And the effects of sin in our world since Eden are everywhere, right? Whatever analogy you want to use, whether you want to imagine sin as the error code in the in the computer system, the, the little code that corrupts the whole thing and brings the whole thing down. Whether you want to imagine sin as a little mechanical glitch in the big mechanism that somehow corrupts the whole mechanism and eventually brings the whole thing down. Whether you want to imagine sin as, as, as the, the little bit of disease in an organism that kills the entire organism and spreads throughout it. Whether you want to imagine sin as a little bit of poison that you drop into a little bit of water that goes and spreads throughout the whole of water, this is the effect of sin. And so the scripture is telling us, quit it. Quit it. Don't do it. But how? So this isn't meant to be theoretical. This is meant to be 100% practical. And I've done my best to try and understand what the scripture says, but also to try and work out, is this how it works for me? This is how it works for me. And there are, there, are, there are some practical observations I want to make about the experience of temptation. There's a, there's a few of them. And I hope they're all helpful. And I hope they help you to endure temptation for the crown of life 
whatever that is. The first observation is this. Temptation is not sin. Temptation isn't sin. The scripture says in Hebrews 4 verse 15 that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet did not sin. Isn't that amazing? Because sometimes we begin to, 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 to guilt ourselves and condemn ourselves just because we have a thought. And the thought flashes in our head. And it's interesting because if temptation isn't sin, then, then, then does that mean that the sick, foul, horrible things that I think, that you think, because you clearly all do think the same sick, horrible, terrible things I do, that those same sick, horrible, terrible things Jesus was tempted with? How does that make you feel? Think of the worst thought that's flown into your head. We're going to talk about that process in a little bit. But if Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, it makes him like our brother, which the scripture says he is. And not like this aloof, unapproachable high priest. He's a high priest that we can approach with boldness and confidence because he understands our weakness. Whatever my weakness is, whatever the temptation that comes to me, Jesus experienced the same thing. So if temptation isn't sin, but embracing, enjoying, accepting it, practicing it, is. Second point I want to make is we need to know what's in our flesh. Now I thought about this because if this was a theater space, I would have done something that I'm never going to get away in church. I would have mashed up a compilation of a lot of subliminal images. And I would have flashed up in those images all the things that are the things that Get my flesh, your flesh, your flesh, your flesh, your flesh. It would have gone up on the screen. You would have seen an image of something that would have got you, but maybe not the person next to you. You might have seen something that's your thing, but it's not somebody else's thing. And so it's interesting that if you don't know what's in your flesh, and the scripture says place no confidence in your flesh, Philippians 3, verse 3, that means whatever I think I'm good at, don't be confident in that. Whatever I know I'm bad at, don't worry about the fact that I'm bad at it. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. Know what's in our flesh. Do you have a thorn in your flesh? You understand the reference is from the New Testament. Paul was speaking about having a thorn in his flesh. And the scripture doesn't tell us what Paul's thorn is. So it's concealed for the whole of human history, and many theologians who had nothing better to do just argue about what it was. It was this, it was this, it was pride, it was this, it was this, it was this. It doesn't matter. He had one. And he says that he prays three times, whether that was metaf- metaphorically, like a lot. Maybe that's the old way you should say, I prayed a lot. Or maybe it's just, I prayed once, prayed again, check the diary, third time, I'm done. God's told me clearly, you're stuck with it. How does that make you feel? If you have a susceptibility to a particular kind of sin, a weakness to a particular kind of sin, a a, a proclivity to a particular type of sin that isn't somebody else's. Because if those images flashed up and someone was like, that gets them in their flesh, but that doesn't get you in your flesh, that's telling you that what's in our flesh is different. But here's the point. If you have it and you've prayed for God to deliver you from it and you still have it, then what? Doesn't the scripture say that his strength is made perfect in our weakness? But it also doesn't mean that we continue to do the thing that is sinful. Whatever we do, we shouldn't feed it. If you have a weakness, don't feed it. 
If you have a sharp tongue, don't go hang around with other people that have sharp tongues. Don't watch movies about people that have sharp tongues. Don't read books about people that have sharp tongues. Don't watch news networks that are just sharp-tongued. Otherwise, what's going to happen? You're feeding the weakness, right? If your thing is something sexual, don't watch movies that have naked people in them. Even the ones that pretend not to be about nakedness. There's a whole lot of stuff on these networks, on Netflix and HBO, that are nothing to do with anything, but they sneak it all in. And we watch it and we think, oh, it's okay. It's not okay if that's your thing. If it's a substance, don't hang with people that have the same substance issues. Whatever it is, the scripture is saying if you recognize that you have a weakness, a proclivity, a susceptibility in your flesh, don't feed it, deny it, put it to death, discipline it. And here's the good news, the flesh is indivisible. That means if I practice self-control in one thing, that self-control is going to manifest in another area of my life. If I discipline myself about how I eat and that when I go to bed and how I wake up and how I work, I promise you that self-discipline is going to characterize every area of your life. So if you're trying to fight this one thing, but you're just lax and have no discipline in any other area, then you're going to have laxness and lack of discipline in the thing that you're trying to fight. The flesh is indivisible, and it's actually sneaky because the some, some, it's weird that, that it just, it's just going to get me in a way that I wasn't expecting because I've been lazy for a week or whatever it is. Instead of feeding it, and feed the Spirit instead. The Scripture says in Psalm 1, blessed is the one who doesn't hang around with people who do the same terrible thing that they do and listen to their advice and set up in their way. But instead, their delight is in the law of the Lord, God's good things. And on the law of the Lord, they meditate, what does it say? Day, night. And the promise that comes from that is and that you're going to be like a, a tree planted by streams of water, bringing forth fruit in and out of season. Your leaves don't wither. Everything you do prosper. Isn't that how we want to be? So whatever the susceptibility, the weaknesses in your flesh, know it, don't feed it, deny it, discipline it, put it to death, feed the Spirit instead. The third thing I want to talk about this is pray for the Lord's leading. Jesus teaches us a prayer that includes the words, lead us not into temptation. What does that mean? Does that mean lead me wherever temptation isn't? If you look at my day and you know that the devil has schemes and plots and plans for me and you can see that from the heavenlies because you know everything, God, and there's a way that you can lead me through this day that means that I don't even have to experience it, then please do that. Lead us not into temptation. God, lead me on this day in a way that means I'm going to be tempted less because I'm weak. I know the susceptibilities of my flesh. I know how I'm going to fail. And if you keep bringing me into the same place, God, I'm going to keep falling in the same way. So lead me in a different way. The rest of that says, but deliver us from the evil one. So if I find myself in a place that the evil one is working, God, give me strength. Deliver me from this. Jesus, teach me. Holy Spirit, teach me. The Romans 7 cycle, which is where we want, we're trying to do something, but we don't have the strength to do it. And we're trying to not do something, but we keep doing the thing that we try not to do. It culminates in this passage in Romans 7, 24 to 25 that says, a wretched human being that I am who will deliver me from this situation. All praise be to Christ Jesus. 
So anything good that comes out of me, any overcoming is the manifest life of Jesus, isn't it? It's the manifest work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? All good things. But there's a passage you won't find in the Bible, and it's the one that we quote so often that says, um, let go, let God. Not in the scripture. And so if the process of temptation and fighting temptation was about to just say, I'm just going to let go and let God, and he's going to do the whole work, why do we have the whole New Testament? The entirety of the New Testament is speaking about a process that I have to participate in. All Paul's teaching is telling me that there's something that I have to do. I have a part to play. James 4, 7, if you were to look at it, says this, resist the devil, and the next bit's interesting, and he will flee from you. How does that make you feel? When the tempter comes to you, trying to make you move, to draw you away to something, the scripture's saying that there is a process of standing in the power and in the strength of God and a resisting of this temptation. And the end result of that is that the devil, the tempter, will flee from Jesus, does it say? From you. And you find that astonishing. Because the pressure of the temptation is always to give in, isn't it? And to yield. But the scripture says, resist him steadfastly in the faith. Elsewhere it says that we should resist soberly and vigilantly, reckoning that the devil is like a roaring lion that prowls around trying to find someone to devour. And instead of being all cowering, it says instead, stand and resist him in the faith. And he will flee from us. But the scripture is telling us also, Philippians 2 verses 12 to 13, work out your salvation. Everything Paul says is telling us there's something I have to do. I think the way to victory is just to sit in my butt and wait for God to do it all. I don't know why Paul wrote most of what he wrote. Work out your salvation, reckoning that it is God who is working where? In you, giving you the will and the power, the desire to do the thing that you have to work out. There's this partnership. I remember Martin Luther King Jr. preached his sermon about how to rid the world of evil. He says, do we just sit back and let God do it all? No. Do we do it all apart from God? No. He says it's the two things together. We recognize the work that God is doing and we partner with him in it. And so in the same way, God's working in you to give you the strength and the power to overcome the things that you think you can't overcome. But we have to partner with him in that. And there have been times in history, I know, and I know people who've been instantly delivered of magnificent things that have gone for years and years, never experienced that sin or that temptation ever again. I know people have been instantly delivered from, from, from severe, extreme, lifelong drug addictions, never come back to them again. But I know a lot more people who are still having to walk it out day by day and having to deal with the temptation day by day, having to recognize that God's power is at work in me. Give me the will to do this. Give me the power to do it. And the scripture says, it is written that if I stand and if I resist the devil, he will flee, he will flee from me. See, so realizing that we have a part to play as we're praying for the Lord's leading and we know what's in our flesh, and reckoning that, realizing that temptation is not sin. But here's the next thing I want to say, next observation. Deception is always at work. We ain't smart enough to have a conversation with the tempter. How did that go for Eve in the Garden of Eden? None of us are smart enough to engage in a conversation with the tempter. 
I don't care who you are. I don't care how many PhDs or degrees or whatever you have. You cannot engage in a debate with the tempter who is the deceiver because he's so much better than us at this. And so you even realize when Jesus is in the wilderness and the tempter comes to him and he says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Do you think Jesus perceived that as Satan or do you think he perceived that as his own thought? You see, Satan can make his temptation feel like your thought, 100%. I've learned something. I remember God opened my eyes. There was a time when it's like you wake up in the morning and you have a voice that flashes from the outside, have a sip of water, so we have a sip of water. And pick up the paper, so we pick up the paper. It's seemingly innocuous things. But the third or the fourth thing is actually the temptation. Unless you realize that the thing that flashes into you, the fiery dart, the arrow, in the first instance, that's how sneaky this is. So I want Dan to do something like, Dan, just, just hey, wave at me, Dan. Okay, Dan, just touch your right knee. All right, now, Dan, go, go out and kill someone. But you listen to me twice, Right? And if it's three or four times seemingly innocuous nonsense, I guarantee you that this is another way that the enemy comes. I'm just telling you, this is something I remember the Lord saying, recognize that he's so deceptive that you cannot engage in conversations with him. You've ever been there earlier? First thing you wake up in the morning, you were thinking about nothing other than just you lying in bed and something, something's in your, suddenly something's in your head. Come out of, where, where's it come from? The worst thought. First thing in the morning. I know it's just me. Clearly it isn't. <laughs> or you're reading your Bible and suddenly the fiery dart hits you, right? Or you're trying to pray and suddenly the fiery dart hits you. Or you're just concentrating on something else that is beautiful and pleasing and the fiery dart comes unexpectedly. How do you know they're not your thoughts? It's hard. We're going to talk about that in this next point. How do you, but if you implicitly hate the thought, if you recognize the thought as evil, if you long to be rid of it, that's telling you that's not you. That isn't you. That's something that's come to you from outside, but the deception and the sneaky way in which it comes is it's too clever. And so we have to be, next point, like Jesus and recognize this phrase it is written. It is written. Jesus in the wilderness doesn't have a debate with Satan. Turn the stone into bread if you're the son of God. Yeah, yeah, I am, I think. I am the son of God. You're right about that. I wonder what kind of stone that is. What kind of bread should I make? Whole grain? Multi-grain? Sliced? How much do I need? It's too late <laughs> at that point. But isn't that what we do all the time? It's like Eve in the garden, Right? She falls because at the end of the day, she enters into the debate with this serpent who's, 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 the, who's the tempter who's been thrown out of heaven and is mighty angry, woe to the inhabitants of earth, that's us. And he's snuck into the garden and he's, and he's sneaky and deceptive and he's, and, he's, and he's just engaging her in a conversation. Did God really say that? I don't know that he did. But he doesn't really mean die. He means this. That's where we fall. We have to be like Jesus. We cannot argue. We cannot reason, we cannot accept any of the tempter's suggestions. We have to say something, stand on something that is written. When you think about the concept of it is written, when Jesus 
refers to something that's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, but before it was in the Bible, where was it written? God's Word. The writers of the Scripture are just capturing God's Word, but God's Word is written everywhere. And the demons know what's written. It's not just in the Scripture, it's in the Scripture, but it's written. In other words, this is an unassailable, universal God law that you cannot contradict, no matter how hard you try, but he's clever. Because even with Jesus... He starts quoting scripture back to him. So, so ultimately what I'm trying to tell you is you've got to get good at this too. And you can't do it in your own wisdom. You have to do this under the influence and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know friends, I, God, um, yeah, I just tell a story. Um, I, I know a friend who'd been a Christian for a minute. Um, and some of us shared this in, 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 in when we had a spirit-led class. And he'd, 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 they'd had a church service where someone had been demon-possessed in the church service. And he was a brand new Christian. And his minister, who is the minister's assistant, sends him round to check this woman who's been delivered of this demonic spirit in the evening. So he goes round, brand new Christian, thinks it's all going to be fine. And clearly she hadn't been. And he said he didn't think he knew any scripture. But out of nowhere, the Lord arose and started to speak things that were written in a way that dealt with the situation and cast the demon out of the woman. So you might be able to trust God to bring that word out of you in the power and influence of the Holy Spirit in the moment to deal with the tempter. But is it not better to be like David in Psalm 119 and says, I've hidden your word where? In my heart that I might not sin against you. So the whole concept of day and night meditating on the law of the Lord is filling our hearts with Scripture so that there's something in there that the Holy Spirit can take hold of and animate and bring to life and answer and say, it is written this. Do you even recognize this one? If you think that you always are obliged to fall into temptation, it says, it is written, blessed is the one who endures temptation. For after you've endured, you're going to receive a crown of life. There are endless other scriptures. And whatever it is that the temptation is trying to draw you aside from, whatever your faith walk is, remember, whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever your faith walk is, Whatever the tempter is trying to draw you aside from, working on whatever the thing in your flesh is, which is probably different than mine, but we may have some of the same things, tempting you, enticing you, drawing you aside. Let's not engage with it. Let's not reflect on it. Let's not ponder it. Let's pray. God, how do I deal with this in the power of your Holy Spirit? How can I respond to this with something? And if you find yourself barren, you ain't got to, it is written, you've got to start to read the scriptures. You've got to spend more time in the scriptures than in some of the other things that we spend time with. Blessed is the one who day and night meditates on the law of the Lord, someone. I really want to be like the tree planted by the streams of water. That means I'm never dry. There's always an answer. There's always something. I want my leaves to never wither when the temptation and the test and the difficulties press in. I want to prosper in everything I do. That's the promise of that scripture. The answer is, how do you get there? Day, night, morning, middle of the day. Soak yourself in the word of the Lord. Listen to songs and psalms and speak to one another in psalms and songs and read the scripture and listen to the scripture and listen to sermons and whatever else you've got to do, just feel yourself in it and I guarantee you, it's going to get easier. And you'll suddenly might find yourself, because if you're consistently praying, and I know this has been my experience, if I'm consistently praying, God, lead me not into temptation, I will go through days and weeks and months, and I don't even face the same thing. Because God's answered the prayer. 
And then if you find yourself in it and you're praying, deliver me from this evil, some translations say deliver me from the evil one, God shows up and does that too. Last point I want to mention is this before closing. Remember those points were temptation isn't sin. Know what's in my flesh. Know what's in our flesh. Pray for the Lord's leading. But we have a part to play. Deception is always at work. Remember it is written. And this last point, expect fruit. Expect fruit. Scripture says, Galatians 5, verse 17, that the flesh and the spirit will always be at war. Always. And God may deliver us entirely. But we should expect fruit. We should expect progress. Galatians 5, 19 to 25 says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we can argue semantics about what it means to inherit the kingdom of God, but it's telling me that this stuff is fundamentally incompatible with it. Fundamentally incompatible with it. And it seems as if that word to practice is just a habitual practice of the same thing again and again. And the scripture's telling us if this is what you've got going on and that fruit is the fruit that's in your life, there's some problem underneath the surface that you need to take to the Lord and deal with if that's all you're seeing in your life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you walk with the Lord for a while, we should be seeing more of those things in our lives. We should be more loving. We should have more self-control. We should be more peaceful. We should have more joy. We should be more patient. We should be more kind rather than the other stuff. Sometimes the temptation is so subtle that I can't separate it from me. You ever experienced that? You don't know the difference between this thought and the good thought. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, I meant to reference that. It says, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Look at that. That means that you can have something that you feel so strongly in your soul that it feels like the entirety of you longs to do and be this thing. But the entry of the word of God somehow brings a separation when you can see that, hold on a sec, this isn't me. My spirit, the pure God part of me is separate from this thought, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrows, and look at this, as a discerner of the thoughts 
and intents of the heart. And we think this is talking about the scripture, but it continues to say, and there is no creature hidden from his sight in the next passage. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So live your life in the presence of Jesus. Tempted every way you were tempted. Nothing you can say, God, I'm experiencing this terrible thing. He's like, yeah, I know. So did I. How do I respond? He says, I'll show you how to respond. I'll lead you in that. My word's going to show you that this thing that you think is insurmountable and not resistible is entirely resistible as the entry of my word brings a new light and a, and a, and a, and a way that you didn't see beforehand. A way out. And that's the scripture I want us to close with. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this then. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. So as Christians, we lie to each other the whole time. We pretend that I don't suffer this or that or the other. We do. All of us do. So it's not that I'm this isolationist. I'm the sickest, weirdest, foulest person in this church, and you all are holy and perfect. We're all the same, which we should be comfortable in. But God is faithful. And this is hard. I'm telling you this next bit's hard. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to deal with. So next time it seems insurmountable, next time it seems as if you've got to give in to the thing that you've given into year after year after year, month after month, week after week, for decades maybe, you might say, it's written somewhere, can't remember where it is. No temptation is facing me except what's common to man. So I'm the only person facing this, which is what this temptation feels like, that I'm the weirdest, sickest human being in the world. And then the next thing is, I think it's written that God won't let me be tempted beyond what I'm able. So you're telling me that I'm able to stand here? And look what the next thing it says is, but with the temptation, we'll also make a way of, next word, escape. A way out. That you may be able to bear it. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that healing? Isn't that amazing? That James breaks down this process of temptation into little microsections. As we break it down, we come to this place and we see this. This is my prayer for myself, for all of us. May we find these words hidden in our hearts whenever temptation enters. For blessed is the one who endures under temptation.